Businesses tend to focus on revenue, profits, and getting loyal customers. But how about healthy workplace culture? You're listening to How I Turned the Corner, where Kendra Prospero leads eye-opening conversations that most business leaders avoid. The right way to address employee challenges. Listen to real-life stories of workplace struggles, giving you valuable advice on what must be done to make every employee truly satisfied and fulfilled in their job. This is for leaders who want to create great company cultures and for employees who want to do something to put an end to suffering at work in the most practical ways possible. Here's your host, Kendra. So one of the purposes of this podcast is to help founders and entrepreneurs see that we all have a chance to pivot our leadership style to be better. None of us are the leaders we need to be a year from now, but we do need to commit to growing. Our guest today is a serial entrepreneur who has had unbelievable success over the years and in 2011 founded yet another company where now he's able to take all his maybe prior mistakes, all his prior mishaps and how he turned the corner to now do it right. Phil T is the CEO and co-founder of Moogsoft, an artificial intelligence platform for IT operations. He is unapologetic about how important culture is at Moogsoft, and the results are in. When employees are happy, everybody wins. Phil T, welcome to How I Turned the Corner. Awesome. Great to be here, Kendra. So I'd love to hear some of your backstory. Tell us a little bit about why did you get so focused on culture in an industry, especially that isn't usually focused on culture as much as you are? Why? Yeah. In fact, I think in some senses, the one thing I would contest is that the, the software business, the IT business, going back to the origins of Silicon Valley, really was about a big culture shift. I go take a walk through the Computer History Museum down in South Bay. If you happen to be there, it's interesting. And one of the best bits of it, from my point of view, is you walk past the area dedicated to the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, famous for Adal Goldberg, the invention of user interfaces, graphical workstations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, one of the leading luminaries in that was Bob Taylor, one of the leading lights in TCPIP networking, right. uh, the stuff that everything is done by, including how we're talking today. And the atmosphere at Park was a collaboration atmosphere. Famously, people would sit around in beanbags discussing whatever was important, extremely flat hierarchy, very transparent and open. People turned up as equals. And it was phenomenally successful, revolutionized the world, was part of how software companies thought about themselves. But somewhere along the way, I think it lost its salt. And as people started making a lot of money, and the routes to making money got shorter, the amounts got bigger. I think it became a little bit obsessed with the glitter of gold. And some of this uber collaborative, very flat hierarchy, treat people as people went away. And perhaps the one thing that I would point to as the sort of evidence of how maybe the software industry lost its mojo in that regard, we talk a lot about gender diversity in technology. And IT and high technology has a problem with that, let's just be mm-hmm. honest. There are just not enough females, or at least not enough non-male in the workforce. And I'm not going to litigate the whys and wherefores of that. But what I'll point to is right at the very origin of the software business, it was actually predominantly female. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, even going back to Grace Hopper and the invention of basic and somewhere away it lost that it is maybe a feature of the more modern silicon valley 
that culture has gone by the wayside. But I think that it is something which will come back and is important that it comes back. So how have you seen it over the years? You've probably ebbed in and out of that over the years. And so what have you noticed that's different now with Moogsoft? And you have focused so much on it. It's in every conversation I've heard from you. Yeah. And okay, look, I don't even want to count the number of years I've been doing this, but let's just say I've built two public companies, trade sales. Moogsoft is definitely not my first rodeo. I've been around the block with this. And when we started Moogsoft a decade ago, myself and my co-founder looked each other in the eye and we'd worked in all kinds of different businesses, some of which were great, some of which were had fairly toxic culture. And we just promised ourselves that we wanted to build a company where if we weren't the founders of it, we would want to apply to get into it and work there because we wanted something that embodied our, our values. So we started with culture. We started with, we want to build a business that reflects certain core values. And secondary to that was ultimately what the company did. I will say it was built around my friendship with Mike Sylvie, my co-founder, is a 30-plus year friendship. He's one of the family. He's one of my best friends without getting picky about it. As he likes to say, he's, he's been a participant at, at all of the important parts of my life from marriage through the birth of my children. We intrinsically trust each other. And I would say that we, at the heart of that, there's trust, there's valuing people as individuals. There is the, the whole wanting to put employees at the center of what we do and customers at the center of what we do. And I think from that stems the whole infrastructure of culture inside of Microsoft. Yeah, I know. I think that's it's awesome. But you weren't always this way. You had times in your past where culture wasn't so focused. You weren't so focused yeah. on it. Yeah. And some of that is life in a rush, right? And when I started in the industry, I never set out to be an entrepreneur. It was not a burning ambition of mine to own my own company. It wasn't a burning ambition of mine to make a lot of money or all of the kind of things I think Silicon Valley entrepreneurs get associated with. I didn't want to rule the world. They want to own Twitter, which I've been invented. Or, or any of that kind of stuff. Actually, how I got into doing it was almost by accident. I had an idea for how a particular bit of software should be written, and nobody would listen to me in the company that I worked in. So I felt constructively dismissed in, into being an entrepreneur. So I started a company to embody a bit of technology that went on to become Micromuse, which went public on NASDAQ. And followed that by Riversoft because on well, Micromuse has a go find the GQ articles on it. My co-founder there was mad, bad, and dangerous to know, and it was a pretty toxic environment. And I actually left to start Riversoft almost because I was sick of the goings-on Micromuse. And the, even that was really I was in a hurry. Like all of this happened by the time I was 30. I'd taken two companies by a bit longer than that, actually. I shouldn't mind. By the time I was 33, I built two public companies and I didn't really think about culture. We did have, ironically, at Rubisoft and even at Micromies, despite the toxicity, there was an incredibly strong bond internally in the business. People looked after each other, but it wasn't baked into the foundations of the business. It wasn't part of the furniture, it just evolved. So it was really only after those experiences, seeing the roller coaster of the dot-com boom and bust and seeing people who thought they were worth lots of money becoming not worth lots of money and realizing the thing that is important actually are the memories that people take from their workplace. And perhaps the thing that gives me the most warm fuzz of pride, if you will, or certainly fond memories 
is when people say to me things like, Riversoft was the best days of my life, or I had the most fun I've ever had working in a business, or we can talk about the Riversoft babies, the folks who met each other and fell in love and settled down and had a family. And that kind of stuff, you realize that working in a business is an experience for the individuals. And it's incumbent upon those who have the power over what that experience is, that the experience is a positive one for them. And that is what built up in me over those years. As we were coming, like I say, into MOOCsoft, and Mike and I have been working in an incubator before then, we didn't really, actually, we thought we were done starting companies. And when we came time to start MOOCsoft, it was like, we're going to do it with the employee right at the center. That's amazing. So how? tell me about those conversations when you started MOOCsoft. You said employees are the center. How did you start figuring out what that was going to look like? Sure. I think it's a lot of small things that add up to a big thing. It's not, and again, remember, this is early 2010s. And in Silicon Valley, I remember bumping into one other entrepreneur who gossipy, tittle-tattle again in the industry said to me, have you heard about such and such a company? Did you know employee number seven there? is a Michelin-starred chef because like the rage at the time was like gourmet lunches for and dinner for employees so that they would never go home. And it's, yeah, there was a lot of that around, but I think that is false employee centrism. It's really more like you're trying to bribe your workforce into loving you. It's really dead straightforward, really. It's inverse Machiavelli, right? Prince can either be loved or feared. It is better to be feared than loved. Right? That's the quote from Machiavelli. I turn it the other way around and say, Prince can either be loved or feared. It's better to be loved and fear because people give up their lives out of love they take yours out of that's That's, powerful so go with the love thing so it's a lot of small things but let me just talk about a couple number one is transparency now i don't know whether you're familiar with semco it was a company in brazil many years ago subject of a book called maverick and so the story goes if i'm going to recall it correctly the owner passed away and it was family business he went to the eldest son he was a playboy, didn't know anything about business. He, so he turned up in his dad's corner office and the company started capitating. Right? He just he didn't know what he was doing. And after four or five months of nearly destroying his inheritance, he gave up in a very constructive way, called the company together and said, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Your problem. I don't know how to fix this. So let me tell you everything that's going on. You're going to tell me what to do. So <laughs> radical decentralization of decision-making. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's a way to go. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that would work in any other business apart from maybe that. I mean, there was, I'm sure there were particularities about what went on there. But I will say that transparency is a very important tool in treating your colleagues as grown-ups, whether the news is good or bad, but importantly, if the news is bad. Good news is easy to share. Congratulations, Jim, you're getting a bonus. Well done, Sally, you're promoted to senior vice president of this, that, and the other. Congratulations, team, we doubled our sales target and we're all going to Acapulco, right? All of that's dead easy. I'm on about the, Jim, your performance isn't really good enough. And if this doesn't really improve, then I'm going to have no option other than to manage your out. Or Sally, I know you're a VP, but you're not really up to the job. You need to step back. Or I'm sorry, team, we missed the sales target by three quarters or COVID hits, we had to do all kinds of things to manage through the process. You have to be transparent. You have to share everything and only hold back the stuff that will do harm to the company if it gets into the public domain. Obviously, if you're ever involved in a situation where the company is being acquired or you're going public or you are public and you've got your quarterly results, 
There are some things which you cannot let out for obvious reasons and obviously respecting confidentiality. Pretty much everything else, just treat people like they're, they're responsible colleagues and adults, and they will behave as responsible grown-ups. No, oh, that's definitely been my experience with my business. I totally agree with you. The more transparent I've been, the more ideas come. And the more just the better the services for the customers, all sorts of things come from that transparency. And I will say that there are some employees who kind of lack, I think, the maturity to handle that too. And that just for me means they're not a fit for me because I don't know how to be anything else other than transparent. (laughs) So, yeah. And that's why culture is a key part of our hiring. I might talk about that in a moment, but I completely agree and would say that the instances where I've been disappointed in how people responded are extremely, probably, I can't even remember one, where somebody has <laughs> misused information or has freaked out. It's a bit like, I don't know what public transport is like in, in Boulder. Got a great affection for the town, by the way. I love the Boulderado Hotel. Great oh, ghost hey. story. Uh, oh, I, I know. One of my good friends is like one of the founding members there, and she's told me all the ghost stories. <laughs> Slightly digress. I stayed there some years ago. And uh, was in the bar before I went to bed, and the barman was telling me the story about what went on in Boulderado, which shan't bore you listeners by repeating it, but it freaked me out. And so I went back to my room, and this was back before I moved to the US. My wife was in in the UK, so obviously six hours ahead of where it is, actually seven hours ahead of Colorado. And I got into the room, it was on the floor where the story happened, not far from the room where the story happened. And it was freezing cold in my room, and I was totally freaked out. <laughs> I was on the phone for like an hour at 2am in the morning talking to my wife going, I'm actually pretty scared about this. When she finally said, you've got to look for the air conditioning. And the air conditioning was hidden behind a painting and it turned out to 50 degrees. <laughs> oh, that's great. But anyway, yeah. So where were we? In terms of, you start with transparency. That's pretty key. Make sure everybody's got the information that you've got. Honesty, giving feedback in a, a very clear way, managing for culture. So when we hire, we, everybody gets screened through HR. And one of the things that we shared during that screen is the culture of the business. And we have it very crisply in five values, grace under pressure, employee first, customer, fanatical customer advocacy, ideas, and fun. And we walk people through what we mean by all of that. Grace under pressure is how I like to think people should behave when stuff goes wrong, because stuff does go wrong. And it's really the idea that you should execute your way out of problems rather than running around shouting at people, finding blame, all the rest of that kind of thing. Employee centricity we talked a little bit about. It's commune for mutual betterment. Realize that management is violence. I'll talk about that in a second. And understand that every day when you go into the office, your job is to make everybody else successful. You do all of that. The next people you turn up for your customers, because if you bring them inside the tent and treat them like they're valued parts of the community, they will advocate for you. And that's super important in a business like ours. Ideas. Look, my backstory is I used to be a theoretical physicist. I'm still active in the scientific community. We sponsor people through PhDs and masters, but it's not just the nerdy stuff. It's please realize every problem deserves a novel answer. And then the fun thing is like an appeal to mortality. Sounds very grand, doesn't it? I'm a youthful 55 years of age. How long I've got on planet Earth? I think I'm pretty healthy, but you never know how these things go. So make every day count. Just have fun. Enjoy what you're doing. And if you don't, and this doesn't give you passion, then do something different. Take up juggling, buy a dog, climb Everest, whatever is in your heart, follow your passion. It's super important. And we test all of that by asking at the end of the, in the process for people to go through this panel interview where what we say to them 
is 45 minutes, 15 minutes at the beginning is the boring bit. This is where you prove to us that you were listening. So tell us about how you would attack the role, what you've learned, how you would go about it. The 30 minutes afterwards is the interesting bit, because I'm going to ask you to make my team better in 30 minutes. I want you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. It doesn't have to be business. Certainly, it doesn't have to be MoveSoft. But it needs to be something you are passionate about that you think would benefit the team to know. Entertain us. And we have had fantastic diversity. How to roast coffee beans, how to be a stand-up comedian, unconscious bias training. We were given a lesson in improvisation. How to cook Vietnamese street food. It's, the list goes on and on. How to run a side hustle as an property owner and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you get inside people's heads and it's almost like you vote people into your gang by doing that. That's great. Wow. Do you tell them the question ahead of time so they have time to think about it or you spring it on them? They know that they've got to do the interview, the panel uh-huh. interview. They decide what they're talking about. I see. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's neat. So what would you do to make us better, Phil? Uh, what make you better? I've not been interviewed. I haven't met enough of your colleagues. How do I know? <laughs> Be encouraging and supportive of everything you do, Kendra. Now, if I was going to talk about what I'm passionate about, I would bore the socks off you. I'm a theoretical physicist. I really get off on fundamental theories of space-time and quantum gravity. I'm a passionate West Bromwich Albion soccer fan. I'm a very avid skier when I can. I love skiing. I bake breads. Who doesn't? A lovely family. Two young kids here with me in the US and two other kids in the UK. So that takes up a lot of time. I have no less than four cats. I could do an entire hour on the psychology of cats. And the whole and it goes on and on and on. Fantastic. Not which is a miss. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that though. That's a great way to get into the minds of your incoming staff and see that they are actually passionate about the other things. Cause I find that some developers especially are quite one-dimensional and they're not that interesting to be around in many ways. Which is a shame because the IT revolution is perhaps one of the most impactful changes in the human journey. I was born and brought up in the Midlands in the UK, a stone's throw away from Ironbridge Gorge, uh, which was built in 1774, 100 years before the birth of Einstein, there or thereabouts, 1784, something of that kind of ballpark. Anyway, it was first mass manufactured iron bridge, and it's where the Industrial Revolution happened. Mm-hmm. Another, 10 miles up the road was Josiah Wedgwood. 20 miles down the road was the Watton Bolton factories and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And that's where the world changed. The last time it was as significant as in the IT revolution. So these software engineers should appreciate that they are changing the world. They're creating one of these dislocations where you may not understand what your grandchildren do for a living. Yeah. So you think with chat GDP coming too, and it's going to change everything about the way work is done and not just work, everything that or when that takes off. Yeah. And I think there's, there are a bunch of innovations right now that are quite game changing. The whole, so chat GPT is using an artificial intelligence technique called GANS or generative adversarial, adversarial neural nets. And they are, they can put dull in a kind of a way. Big thing about GPT-3 is huge. The technology itself is not dramatically different from other neural net technology, but nevertheless, innovative. But quantum simulation computing, as opposed to quantum computing, graph-based computing, the merging of graph and quantum computing could be very interesting. I think there's some huge changes that will, if it doesn't make the IT a genuine artificial intelligence it probably will make it routinely pass the Turing test and be 
effectively a real intelligence. And where will humans fall with all that? What will happen to our employees, do you think? Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't know. Do you remember that comment about you won't know what your grandchildren do for a living? I think that's the truth of it. I really don't. There's, I can even, there's other stuff as well. There's a problem in computer science called P equals MP. Is it, are there algorithms in finite time for any problem that you can think of? So things like traveling salesmen and yada yada and all the rest of it, which will change the world because that could be one route to getting genuine artificial intelligence will certainly revolutionize security. My guess is that what computers will never do is replicate humanity or humanness. I said a little while about management is violence. What I mean by that is when you're in a decision-making position, you're exercising power over people and you have the power to do good things and bad things. Like firing somebody is never pleasant when you're doing it. And it's a lot worse if you're on the receiving end of it. It's a violent activity from an emotional perspective. And hopefully we should try very hard never to get that. But sometimes you do. If you think about AI, perfect AI, ultimately what you're building is a decision-making machine. But can you build a machine that can make decisions and execute them in a human way? You know, and it's, it's often held up as one of those areas where AI could really help making life and death decisions. But when you're holding the hand of a dying person, that is not a, an intellectual decision. That is an act of humanity. The last time I checked, my computer may get warm and ask it questions, but it isn't warm in the human sense. So I think that human beings will ultimately end up providing the coating around some of this technology and the technology will assist rather than replace the presence of the human. Mm-hmm. All of that being said, I think there are some jobs that today we hold out as the preserver, very well-educated and erudite people that will go away. I think the law, for example, it large tracks what takes a human being to work out whether or not something is legal or illegal. Yeah, maybe that can be done better by a computer. Yes, I'm married to a lawyer. I hope that happens, actually. Gosh, on that note, Phil, I feel like maybe the way to end this is to remind everybody that humanness is what's going to actually make us survive. And the treating people and remembering that humanness is ultimately the essence that's most important in our businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. I'm really looking forward to seeing where you end up taking this company too and what you end up doing with all this emerging technology too. Thank you very much. Stay in touch on that. Yeah, we will. We'll check back in with you in a couple of months. Thank you for joining this exciting episode. We hope this discussion brings you closer to a better, healthier, and more rewarding workplace everyone deserves to be a part of. If you want more content like this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at turningthecornerllc.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to share this with your friends in the corporate world. And together, let's make this space a hub of growth and job satisfaction. If everyone loves where they are, they can always give their best without regrets. That's all for now. See you on the next one.